Our scripture reading comes from the book of 2 John, verses 1 through 6. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. This is God's word. Amen. Well, if you open your Bibles to 2 John, and just so you're not scared, you didn't miss like seven weeks of study, and we finished 1 John. If you had the study guide, you'll see that 2 John is kind of inserted into uh, the middle of 1 John, or maybe the beginning third of 1 John, and these are in the back. If you don't have one, you should grab one, um, because it's got some other information and and study materials for you. But we are going through um, 2 John today, and the reason why is because it fits nicely into what John actually says in the first chapter uh, of his first letter. He began his first letter, this, this loving pastor and the son of thunder, um, by establishing his credibility as the only living eyewitness to the person of Jesus Christ, uh, that he might refute the false teachers who are teaching uh, lies, basically, about uh, Jesus and his identity and even his uh, historicity uh, and also the message that uh, the apostles have uh, carried on from him. And he says in that first letter that it's the truth about Jesus that establishes true, genuine fellowship and actually brings about uh, true joy. And we saw last week uh, with a very uplifting sermon on confessing sin uh, was that True fellowship, uh, or the nature of true fellowship, is that there are people that uh, walk in the light with God, or maybe according to God's light. And they do that confessing their sin together and claiming forgiveness uh, in Jesus. And those who do not walk in the light, those who do not have true fellowship, walk in darkness. They don't have fellowship with God, and they cannot really have genuine fellowship with one another. They end up pretending denying or just kind of having some kind of fake community of affinity, but not genuine, true fellowship in God. And there's a verse uh, that inspired kind of to insert Second John in here, uh, which was verse 7 of the first chapter of John, where he says this, If we walk in the light, as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another. Again, echoing those same thoughts. And so the light of God opens our eyes, to see our sin, to see our weaknesses, to admit our inadequacies, where we fall short, and it leads us to the cross to find forgiveness in Jesus, to find that we don't have to be adequate, that Jesus has done all the work for us. And it's this shared confession of the gospel that brings us into a shared identity as a family of saved sinners. And that brings us into what is called fellowship. And for me, as I read this, I'm like, okay, so we're in fellowship as we walk in the light, confessing our sin, claiming forgiveness. What's that fellowship look like exactly? Um, Is that just an association of of spiritual people? Is that like a a Christian club? Is that um, just some kind of affinity group where we're all the same? Is that just a group of people that gather together on Sundays or during the week to talk about Jesus? Is that what it is? Because growing up, that's kind of what I thought church was. I had no other explanation for what it was other than that's what Christians do on Sundays. Now, 2 John elaborates on this idea of fellowship, and it gives us a sense of how we are to interact with fellow brothers and sisters, Christians in the church. He also... Uh, in the second half of the letter, which we'll read, has some hard words about who we ought not fellowship with. 
Now, I've got to give you a warning, uh, and I warn all of us, including myself, but I've already had to deal with it all week, that with everything John writes, um, this short letter is going to challenge your personal idols, your personal preferences, and your little practices you had, those covenants that you've made in your mind, those promises, I will never do this because you've been hurt or had a bad experience or just because you don't like it, it's going to challenge those. If, in fact, this letter doesn't offend you in some way, you are probably misunderstanding it, which would be difficult, or you're focusing so much on the fact that you think it's intended for someone else, right? Like the guy next to you, or that person that really bothers you, whatever, that you go, man, I'm so glad Frankie's here to hear this sermon, okay? When you begin to do that, know that you are slowly cranking down the veil over your own heart as a deflector to actually the truth. Know that this is for you. This is for me. This is for us. Not anyone else. Second John um, is one of two. Third John's the other. The shortest letters in the New Testament. It would have probably fit on just one piece of papyrus, rolled up nicely and, and sent, uh, comparable to probably a, a nice, concise email today. Right? Short, to the point. There you go. John begins it by identifying himself as the elder. And we know that in Scripture, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and in Titus, and in even in 1 Peter, that there is a description of um, uh, an office or position of elder or bishop or overseer in Scripture. And that's not what he's writing from. He's not writing from a formal office in authority over these churches uh, around Ephesus. It should probably better be understood as somewhat of a title of affection with authority. So like... It'd be similar to him writing uh, your pastor or the old man, right? They know he is old. They know who they're talking about or who he's talking about. He doesn't have to self-identify as John. He says, it's me, the pastor, okay? He also writes to a kind of a strange person is the elect lady. And scholars go back and forth trying to determine if this was a real person, if there really was a lady. I've even read some... People are like, yeah, it's Mary, you know, Jesus' mom, and all these things. And um, I actually do not believe it's uh, an actual woman or actual person. Instead, it's more likely a, a personification of the church that he's writing to. Uh, God's elect people are called uh, the bride in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, Jesus uh, dies for and uh, is married to the bride. And so it is a... Um, Familiar term that can be used, or familiar image, I should say, to connect God's people, the church, uh, with the bride of Christ and call her an elect lady. Her children then would be the members of the church that John is writing to. Now, at the end of the letter, in verse 13, uh, we learn that John is writing from the lady's elect sister. So it's not two ladies, it's two churches, and he's writing from another church full of Christians uh, nearby. And for me, just that beginning and end uh, is a beautiful thing. And I don't know if, if because you, know, you don't think as a pastor that you think it's beautiful, but uh, for me, um, John intends to address in this letter this sense of community. That's what the letter's about. This idea of Christian hospitality and community and fellowship and what is that actually supposed to be? What does it look like? Um, and that's for the people in the church. But at the same time, we see a sense of fellowship and a community just by nature of who the letter comes from and who it's sent to um, between churches. And I'll tell you, I'm so concerned with Damascus Road or any church that I would be affiliated with starting to position itself as the only church there is, as the, the best church, the church that you should be at, all those types of things. It's important for Damascus Road, you, us, to maintain a kinship with other churches. A relationship, a friendship, a fellowship, in the same way we ask each other to have fellowship, a fellowship among other churches. This isn't all churches. This isn't every church or anyone that claims to be a Christian church. There's many churches that are flat out nut jobs 
and are not gospel-centered and teach heresy. I'm not talking about that. We have a relationship with another Acts 29 church uh, called The Seed. Actually, I think they changed the Seed community now over in Linwood. And we have, uh, I would consider them um, brothers and sisters in Christ. We love them. Um, we have destroyed them in football except for one year, which was last year. And that was happened the year we had a trophy, but we will get it back this year. Guys, represent. All right. Um, but we love them. We care for them. They have cared for us. They have given to us. We have given to them. We have a love and a brotherhood and a fellowship. We're very different, but we're also very similar in what we believe. Communion Church is the church plant we are sending out. Jim is leading a group of people. Little do they know that that quarter of people at the end of August will be standing up here. You'll see the people, our family members, that we are sending to another place. We will pray over them. We will care for them. We will give to them. We will love them. From the beginning, for many years, I hope, that we can say, we've got brothers and sisters in Mount Vernon. We've got brothers and sisters in Linwood. There's got to be a fellowship there. And the thing about it is, what brings us together is not that we're the same. It's not that we have the same music, the same graphics, the same clothing, the same... It's not. Communion Church will be very different from us. It will look different. It will sound different. And I want it to because it should be organically grown for what it is and not imposed what it should be. The thing that brings us together as churches is the truth that we hold to. The gospel truth. So I can say, my brothers who believe the gospel are doing gospel work in this place. And that's not to say that we're not friends with other churches around here, but we have a special kinship with some. And that's what John has here. Now, what we see then is even from the very first verses and from the greeting and and the closing, that there's an emphasis between the connection between truth and love. You check out those first verses here. He says that he is writing to the church, from this church, to this church, because he loves them in truth. And then he further says, all who know the truth love them also. And then he goes, because the truth is in their hearts forever. And if that's not enough, he says that grace and mercy and peace will come from God to us in truth and love. And so you have this connection between truth and love that's essential as he addresses and begins to address fellowship. And we see then that, that these two things, love and truth, are inseparable. In fact, I would say that truth and love balance each other. They, they qualify one another. And love and truth are both essential to a gospel-centered, God-centered, truth-centered community. Think about this. Truth without love. You may have seen a community or been in a community that's exhibited this kind of misbalance. Truth without love ends up building a community that is theologically solid and strong, very much about truth, but they end up being relationally cold and hard and unloving, not only toward one another, but toward anyone else that may not know the truth or have the truth that they have. That's truth without love. On the contrast, if you have love without truth, that ends up creating a fellowship that everyone, and I mean everyone, wants to be a part of because they're very affirming. And they're affirming in that they are indiscriminate about who they love and how. Now, I don't want people to hear like, well, you shouldn't be loving to certain people and those types of things. But the problem is, if a community only has love and not truth, it ends up not having anything to help discern what is dangerous what is harmful, even what is good or wrong. How I am to love. That's what comes from truth. It is a community that's easily swayed by emotion, easily swayed by experience, and you begin to see or have seen movements for unity, 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 and they say love, 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 love. And what happens is that in order to foster love, they'll end up getting rid of any truths that might offend someone's sensibilities. 
They say, well, if that truth is going to be offensive, we'll get rid of it or change it. We'll make it more palpable. Compromising truth will never, ever, 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 ever create true fellowship. And any fellowship that fails to love, guess what, is already guilty of compromising the truth. So they go together. They're inseparable. John Stott said that fellowship of the local church is created by truth and it is exhibited in love. Now, he proceeds into kind of detail what this is going to look like, and he reports about some people or what he's heard about the people in the church that he's writing to. And he says this in verse, uh, verse 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So he rejoices, he's joyful, he's excited about, he is grateful to see that there are people actually walking like Christians in this church. Now, we can understand that to say, when he says some, that there's been a group of people that have come from the church to talk with John, and he is now sending a letter back with him, because we see that same thing happen in 3 John. So that when he says some, he's just talking about the some he's interacted with. Like, man, the people I met from your church were awesome. They were walking in truth. They were, they were loving. It was great. Or he could be saying, I know that some of you are walking in the truth, and some of you in the church are not. And John has, has been hammering this idea of walking. He started off, first John, he charged people to, to walk in the light. We talked about that last week. Now, he talks about walking in the truth, which we'll see is evidenced by those walking in love. And we have to understand, and this is, this is key, that walking in the light, walking in the truth, and as he'll say, walking in love, are not simply good, good rules of thumb. Or great advice to live by. He says, as he's going to say several times, they are commands from God the Father. Now, may I can just be honest about myself, because I know I'm like this, and there's probably no one else like this. We don't like commands. Okay? We don't like to be told, at least I don't, a struggle being told to do anything by anyone. We don't like to be told what is good, what is bad. Our response typically is that's good for you. May not be good for me, including God. We don't like to, you might say, but there's a part of us called the sinful flesh that struggles against it. But because some of us, and I don't know who the other some are, but some of us, fear God a little bit, we have um, the tendency to uphold the negative commands of God. And by negative commands, I mean the things that He forbids. Those things are kind of, okay, I won't lie, cheat and steal, commit adultery. Okay, I can, those are easy. I can see. And the thing that I, th- I might be wrong, but I think sometimes that we agree that those commands are good not because God has said it, whereas where it should begin and end in terms of the conversation, but because we've determined in our mind that that's probably a valuable thing. You say this, God? Let me weigh that out. Yeah, that will probably benefit me, so I think I'll obey. Now, I don't know if we consciously do that, but I think that we do that. Okay, Maybe I do that, maybe you don't. We evaluate whether we're going to obey God's commands or not, whether they're going to benefit me. The negative ones are a little easier to obey because, well, that makes sense. We're not going to murder anybody. You know, go to jail. So, yeah, we understand. Weird reason not to. Then there's the positive commands of God that I think we actually struggle with a lot more, where he commands us to actually do something, like serve, like give. Or, as we'll see here, love. We have uh, very creative ways, too, of justifying our disobedience. Sometimes it's ignorance. 
Well, I didn't know. Sometimes it's a misunderstanding. What do you mean exactly by lie? Or what do you mean by serve? I mean, it can mean a lot of things, Lord. Love thy neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Okay? We start misunderstanding it. Or maybe more often we passively obey. Love? Okay. Serve? Okay. Um, I'm going to pray that someone will step up and serve you. That would be fantastic. That someone will meet the need that's right in front of me and I could actually help with. But, you know, I'm going to pray that someone will come along and meet that need for you. I'm sure you've never done that. Or, I'm going to send a loving thought towards that person. Right? I love that person. Man, I am just, I just, and that's what it amounts to. Passive, dis- I've obeyed, I've loved, I've, I've sent good thoughts towards them. Now, I find it curious here that as John starts transitioning to where he's going to really hit, and he hit me this week, he asks the church, he doesn't command the church to do something. What I like, it, it's kind of like um, uh, he, he's going to tell them something that God has said and then step back and go, there you go, have at it. You deal with God. Because what happens oftentimes when a, a pastor proclaims something, preaches something, teaches something, oftentimes if you don't like it, you take it up with the pastor. That's why we try to read a lot of God's word here. So that I can like take a stick of dynamite, here it comes, and then just like walk away, okay? You deal with it. It's between you and God. So know that this is between you and God, what he says here, if you feel any kind of um, guilt. I'm not trying to guilt you into anything. And I like John is trying to say, I'm just going to ask you something. I'm just going to make a request, not a command. And I actually believe this is the role of all pastors, is not to give new commands, not to uh, invent new ways of living or create new kinds of Christianity or build new kinds of churches. The role of the pastor is to point the church to what God has already commanded in his word. And by doing that, we, we read the word publicly, we sing the word, we preach the word, we pray the word, we tell other people to read the word. We tell people to test what we say by the word. It's always back to the Bible. So I'm going to simply ask you, Damascus Road, I'm going to ask you to do what God has already commanded This is what John does here. He uses the, the word command three times in three verses. He's like, let me ask you something, command, command, command. Let me just ask you something. Okay? And the command is to love one another. Not the suggestion, not the advice. The command is to love one another. Now, God has commanded us to love our neighbors He has commanded us to love even our enemies, which might be a little more difficult. But he has also commanded us to maintain a bond of love with our brothers and sisters in Christ, specifically those who are in this church as you are gathered here. That's special. That's special. And it's not because, catch this, it's not because we are naturally drawn to one another. I'll admit that. We're very different. It's not because I see that person go, they're just exactly like me, and that's why I'm drawn to them. They're cool, and I want to be cool. They're drawn to them. They're good-looking, and I'm ugly. I'm drawn to them. Whatever it is, okay, that's not what naturally draws us or should draw us. What is supposed to draw us is not something that's shared in our flesh, but it's a spiritual one created by our shared faith in the gospel and our shared geographic area that we live in. Now, this is going to be hard for many to hear. Because your sinful flesh is going to kick against this command. It's going to kick against it. And you're going to have your legal defense team running to your defense with all the arguments and the evidence for either why you have loved or why you don't have time, energy, resources to love as God commands. And know that the problem isn't with God's command. 
That's not where the, the tension's coming from. It's not with the fact that it's difficult to interpret or understand what do you mean. The problem is it's too easy to understand. It's too simple. The command to Damascus Road Church is to love one another. And that is not just feelings of goodwill we project towards those we happen to gather with. Love is not just an emotion. If you remain or let love be just an emotion, it will never ever be duty in your world or responsibility. It is not some involuntary, uncontrollable passion that you wait to be generated in, in you so that you will act. That's not love. Love is unselfish service that occurs with a deliberate, willful choice. How do I know that? Jesus. Love is an act of obedience. He went to the cross out of obedience to the Father. The most loving thing that could have happened. He didn't wait for all the feelings to be generated. Okay. In fact, he was praying in the garden how terrible and difficult it was. But he submitted himself to the will of the Father. So what does love look like at Damascus Road? What does it look like? Well, John says it's an old command from the beginning. The first beginning he used in 1 John was the beginning of the gospel. Jesus is the one who gave this command. So if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13, his gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And in John 13 is where Jesus gave the command that he's talking about. Specifically in chapter 13, verse 34. Okay, So John has said, I'm not giving a new commandment. Jesus is the one who gave it. I know it's confusing, but he says this. A new commandment I give. That's pretty self-explanatory, actually. Okay, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The question is, what did Jesus do prior to this? Well, if you've never read John 13, you should. It's one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible. And what it pictures is Jesus Christ, infinite God in human flesh, creator of all things, humbling himself, not only taking the form of a servant, which he is as a man, but taking the form as a servant as a man, and washing the feet of his disciples. Twelve guys all of which would reject him and and hide in fear when he's arrested, one of which would betray him. And he gets on his hands and knees, and he washes the dirt off the creation of these, these men that he created. An act of love that will never, ever be repeated, but an act of love, he says, love as I have loved you, as I have just done. And I know a lot of us like to use this excuse. It's very familiar. Well, I'm not Jesus. That He's the Son of God. I can't do what He did. If you have been saved by Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus dwells in your heart and provides you and powers you with the capacity to obey this command. Do you realize any good work that you do for those who are saved by Christ is done by Christ? So you have the capacity, and if you are kicking against it, it is your sinful flesh, you need to fight it. And you have the power to do that in Christ. You see, the love that, that Christ had for his people, and I, we talk about this in my premarital counseling, I like to call it efficacious love. It's love that has an effect. It's not just sentimental love. We're very good at sentimental love. 
loving feelings, loving language, but efficacious love, where you actually see an effect physically, emotionally, spiritually, that's the kind of love that Christ demonstrated on the cross. Because of the cross, because of the death of Christ, something happened, changed in us. We were cleansed. We were given new life. We were restored. That is the kind of love that we're talking about. And I'm just going to be honest with you, and I, again, I've been honest with myself this week, and I try very hard to do that so I don't just come and go, well, these people need to learn this. I have really struggled to ask, as a church, how well do we do loving our brothers and sisters? I'm not talking about loving the world. I'm not talking about feeding the homeless. I'm just talking about loving each other this way. And I'll be honest, um, I'm a little concerned, as I probably would be for all churches, but this is the one of which I am called to shepherd, that the culture of, or the the attitudes in culture, that being those that are consumeristic and fairly self-centered, have begun to overwhelm and even overpower maybe the Christ attitudes that are supposed to dwell in us that say, I'm going to consider others more important than myself. If you find yourself regularly saying, I can't love, serve, do X, Y, Z because it's not going to give me this, I'm concerned for you and I'm concerned for us because you're part of this church. Do we actually consider others as more important than ourselves? And I mean us. I don't know if we love our brothers very well. Now, with all gratitude and praise to God, we have a number of people who serve our church. We have people who serve in Kids Road. We have people who serve to play music. We have people who serve during the week. We have people who serve leading Bible studies. We have people who serve cleaning toilets. We have people who serve who do all kinds of things. Service is, without doubt, part of loving one another. But let's just talk about caring for one another. Let's talk about encouraging one another, protecting one another, providing for one another. All things that we would characterize as loving. Before the sermon, um, man, you think I could deal with the emotion the first service and be okay with it. Uh, before first service, I uh, had a brother come up to me, asked him how he was, and he said, okay, and I knew he was lying. And uh, he told me that um, his bride will be battling with cancer again. And it hurt. And it didn't hurt because I'm the pastor. It hurt because that, that person and that, that couple is family. And I'm concerned for those of you who attend here where that will never, ever hurt you because you'll never know anyone enough to let it. There's something glorious and joyful about knowing and being known in a community. And I'll be honest, it feels like sometimes, um, unless there's a scheduled event or a formal program, or some kind of stated expectation where we give you cards and say, hey, you know what, why don't you spend some time with people? Here's a way to invite them. Most of us will not initiate relationships with those who we actually call by being here a family. What do, I just got to ask myself, like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I fear that maybe... Um, because I'm not the only leader, but I am the lead. I fear that sometimes my reluctance and failure to initiate relationships has in some way through osmosis affected others' failures to initiate relationships. And it just gets more difficult as we get bigger. It does get more difficult. So though we gather every week, and quite frankly, some of us are Facebook friends, and... Most of us, let's be honest, maybe are not close enough to even know each other's names. Let alone let them know our struggles and our fears and our desires and our hopes. 
And I'm not saying that to people who are, you know, brand new. I'm saying to people, you've been here a while, you know. And I say it to myself. I don't know everyone's name in this church. Not that I should. But just because, do we realize that just because we attend, just because we give, just because you serve, just because you signed your name on some membership covenant, does not necessarily mean you are actually fulfilling Christ's command to love one another. I'm not giving you a list of ten things that you need to do to prove that you love. Just saying, Christ has commanded it and we need to understand it in some way and I'm not sure we have understood it or lived it well. Because we're talking about Christian hospitality, brotherly warmth, generosity, friendliness, openness, kindness. The kind of love for one another that is not ever seen in the world, the kind of love that makes us different, the kind of love that Jesus says actually identifies us as his disciples. We've got to ask ourselves some hard questions. When's the last time you initiated contact with somebody who you didn't know or had someone over to your home? I mean, if we're not loving our brothers... I don't know how we ever could be expected to love our neighbors. And I was convicted this week. Um, I even emailed my bride about it of like, we've had a baby and, and there's transitions you go through where you're kind of busy and whatnot. But uh, I started thinking, quite frankly, of all the single people in our church. Sometimes having people over can be kind of a, like, got to make a meal for a couple and there's seven kids. Not that every family has seven kids here, but you know what I mean. And it can be hard, but just inviting someone over that just to live and be with your family, that's easy. And yet I have not done that. This isn't a, a command of the pastor to guilt you into it. This is what I've wrestled with this week myself. And so I'm simply asking the question and letting God work with you and work with me. In verse 7, John somewhat awkwardly transitions into a different kind of fellowship about fellowshipping with false teachers. And I had to ask myself, why? It seems kind of weird. It's like, love one another, love one another, love one It's a command, love one another. And he's like, don't fellowship with these guys. I'm like, okay, why is that? And here's why I actually think it is. I've come to the conviction that it's because people in the church are loving false teachers and their worldly friends better than they're loving their brothers. Verse 7 says this, For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose heart what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So to begin, there were and there are false teachers in the world, everywhere, in John's time and in ours. They teach a new religion, lead new spiritual movements, create a new version of Christianity. And John calls these guys antichrists. Those who deny biblical truth and sound doctrine. And John is the only one that uses that title, antichrist, and he uses it here in his letters. And the the title is often identify with the powerful and, and evil man and, of sin, a man of lawlessness in the end times. And we'll discuss that uh, more carefully in 1 John. But here, he uses a description as teachers whose deceptions begin with denying the truth of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, and the fact that the Son of God took on human flesh. And we saw in 1 John that typically continues where they begin to deny the existence of sin and ultimately deny their need for a Savior at all. In John's day, there are actually preachers and and teachers, what we consider missionaries, going out, as we say, they've gone out into the world and coming into their communities, both their churches and their homes. And this is a culture of hospitality. We're we're very different these days. We don't have that kind of culture. We're not as trusting as people uh, in, at, at this time they would have been and in the Middle East. It's, uh, 
It's at a time when, when strangers would come and they would um, be asked or invited to stay with families and be treated as family. To tell someone who came to go stay at the inn was both unkind and um, also unsafe. A lot of the inns at the time were just you know, terrible places and they were dangerous places. And so uh, you would have to, uh, or you would invite people into your home. And John warns him that these individuals are coming out because Christians in particular were the people called to be hospitable, called to demonstrate love. And so uh, these preachers and missionaries would come out and they were supposed to especially love the brothers and especially invite them in. And John says, these guys are coming to take advantage of you. They're going to claim they're Christians and they will come in and destroy your faith in God and faith in his ways. And this is not just about destroying the identity of Christ where they start with. It's about destroying all the things that they've been established with, all the things that they've worked for to understand that come from the apostles' teaching. Whether that be morality, an understanding of family and roles, all these things that they have become rooted in. Do not ever forget that the truth of God is always, always, always under attack. Sometimes it's subtle. It's not always an overt attack. But it typically, actually, is, comes from within the church, comes with a little bit of truth, just like Satan did in the garden, where he's like, did God really say this? That's not really true. So these false teachers are going to be coming around, and he says that these guys have claimed to have gone ahead. And by gone ahead, he means that these guys have claimed to have you know, progressed to new truths and and new ideas, and know that new truths or new ideas, I'm not opposed, and I don't think anyone should be opposed to, to new methods coming into the church or updated language and those types of things. We're not talking about, you know, we shouldn't be doing church like it's 1976, okay? There are things that need to change, but there are without doubt things that never change, God and His Word do not change with culture, with time, and with new revelations. Okay, that doesn't change. That remains the same. And the early church of the first and second century wrote a, <clears throat> excuse me, an interesting manual. It's called the Didache, and you can you can read it. You can, you can get a copy of it. You can read it online. But it's basically like an early church manual, and part of it was how to deal with false teachers, how to recognize false teachers. How do you know if it's a false teacher or not? And there's a couple of things they said. First of all, they have perverted teaching. Makes sense. Secondly, they take advantage of one's hospitality. They get very specific and they say, yeah, let them stay one day. If they want to stay two, that's okay. If they want to stay three, false teacher. <laughs> really, that's pretty specific. Okay? They also said, if they come and are constantly asking for money. Haven't seen that anywhere. Sow a seed, sow a seed, right? Pretty good red flag. They have bad manners. Interesting. But it's probably connected with the other one where they said they don't do what they actually teach. The theology leads them into not only bad manners and bad ethics, but they don't even do what they claim to believe. In essence, they're selling Christ as a tool uh, for others to get what they want as opposed to proclaiming Christ as the king to be worshipped. It's a huge difference. So John says in verse 10, don't fellowship with these guys. He says specifically, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked work. So he gives them very hard words. He says, don't let them in your house or your church. Don't even greet them on the street. Don't even say hi. And if you do, you're not only acknowledging them, but you are participating in their evil. That's pretty serious. That doesn't apply today. I don't know. Back then, they took it very literally. There's a story of uh, one of the early church fathers, Polycarp, and uh, met the heretic uh, Marcion, and Marcion came up to him, and he said, uh, do you recognize me? And Polycarp responded, I recognize Satan's firstborn. 
Oh, okay. Even John, there's a story about John himself where he was um, in the public baths, which was a very Roman thing back then, and uh, Serenthus, who was a false teacher, uh, teaching uh, false truths about Jesus, he entered, enters, they call the heretic entered, and here's what John says. He ran out, and John was proclaiming, let us hurry away lest the building collapse on us, because Serenthus, the enemy of truth, is here. So, go and do likewise. Amen. No, I mean, the truth is, they took some very literal, hard-line understanding of what John meant. And I don't think that we'll have false teaching Benny Hinn, who is a false teacher, okay? I don't think we'll have him knocking on our door, wanting to hang out. Uh, we have Mormons coming around and Jehovah Witness coming around. And I don't want you to think that I, I don't think you should invite Mormons into your house or Jehovah Witnesses for cookies so that you can proclaim the actual real Jesus to them. Okay? I actually think you should. I don't think it's good for you to like um, turn the lights off and pretend you're not there when they're knocking. Or you see them down the street and you quickly go garden in the backyard. You know, So um, I don't think that's actually a good idea. But it is about asking some very hard questions about who or what false teachers you may be bringing into your home. We allow false teachers and false teaching to come into our homes all the time. Some come through books, some come through television, but others, quite frankly, come through friends, and some even come through family. We're like, well, we're family, you know. It's, it's one thing to have them over. It's another thing to let them preach. And because I think we have failed oftentimes to be watchful shepherds, especially those who are, have families and are husbands and fathers, through words and actions and even lifestyles, you've allowed people in that come to challenge and many to destroy the foundational truths of your home. Now, if John says anyone, if anyone comes, does that mean any unbeliever at all? It's a good question. It's a very good question. It sounds like John's putting forth this tension between uh, holding to the truth and uh, loving the world like we're supposed to, some level. In today's um, missional movement, is often preaching uh, the importance of connecting with non-believers, and I do think that's important. And they'll say, oh, just like Jesus, we need to hang out in, you know, with sinners. I think that it's important to proclaim the gospel and to love sinners. But I've also come to the conviction, and this is why I think John is writing this, that people in the church have begun to love false teachers and their worldly friends better than they have their own brothers. If true community is only possible with those who love God, we simply need to be very aware of who is in our communities. In, in all of our creative attempts to evangelize, right? Like, well, I'm just, I'm here on mission. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be, but I'm also wanting you to never forget the doctrine of sin. That you and I are totally depraved and can easily be tempted and easily fail. And the question simply is, who is actually influencing who? Who really? I mean, come on. Who really is influencing who? As we build communities or join new communities that are not centered in truth, you know that they're not, they're not in fellowship with God, let's just be aware of our own sin, of our own weakness, of our own need for Savior. Jesus said that the church, the people of God, are to be a city on a hill, salt in the world, a light and a lamp on a stand. We are called out of the world as we live in the world. And as Christians, we should not be afraid or apologetic 
about living fully in the identity of Christ, of holding lines that God has drawn, of following the commands that the world finds weird or offensive, of believing differently, of living differently, of loving differently. And dare I say that if you do not do those things as you're in the world, is it because you're ashamed of Christ? Really? John ends with an uh, interesting verse. He says, Though I have much to write to you, rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that your joy, our joy, may be complete. The children of your lex sister greet you. He says, I'd rather not use paper and ink. And so we'll close with this because John could have written more, but he realized the danger of writing long emails and the power of face-to-face conversations. Letters, phone calls, emails, even Facebook are not the most effective tools to walk in the truth or walk in love. I'm not saying they're sinful. I'm just saying they're not the most effective tools. And even John says that, this letter itself, I can't wait to be face-to-face with you. Real joy comes in real relationships. Real joy comes in real relationships with the real God at the center. And I pray that our love for one another will move us beyond paper and ink, beyond email, beyond Facebook, beyond attendance together, beyond covenant and official membership together, beyond good thoughts towards one another, and actually be true love for one another. Where when you cry, I cry. When you rejoice, I rejoice. When you are hurting, I'm hurting, I know about it. True family. That doesn't happen by accident. When you start off as a small church, it's easier. When you become bigger, it's very difficult and will naturally degenerate away. God called us out of the darkness into light together, and he empowers us to walk in truth together, and God commands us to walk in love together. And we end our service as we always do with communion. And this is for the family. This is a family, this is a shared meal. We come and we partake of the same bread, of the same wine. It's a shared meal. So as you come up, you are making, yes, an individual confession of sorts. I believe in Christ. I believe his blood was shed for me, a sinner. I believe that because of what he has done, I get to be in the presence of the Father. But you also confess participation and identity with the family. And so as we see each other go up there, I think, brother, sister, brother, my family, whom I have a responsibility and a joy to love.